Welcome back to the Thinking Minds podcast. My name is Alex, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing seven common misconceptions about psychotherapy and a few alternative ways you can think about it. The first ever psychology clinic is apparently dated around 1896 and was founded by someone called Littner Wilmer, an American psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. So that means psychotherapy in its current form has been around for about 127 years. Despite this, there's still a lot of mystery and intrigue surrounding psychotherapy, what it's purported to do and how it works, One of the reasons for this podcast's existence is to try and unravel some of this mystery and make certain aspects of psychotherapy more accessible, more comprehensible to more people. Aside from mystery and intrigue, of course, there's a lot of scepticism and perhaps some cynicism as well. A healthy degree of scepticism is important to apply to any process which is said to improve people's lives and especially if you're saying it improves people's lives in exchange for money. And all psychotherapists should welcome scepticism and constructive criticism as it applies to their work, so they can get better as practitioners, and so the field can develop as a whole. That being said, a lot of criticism of psychotherapy is made by people who don't have much experience giving, receiving, or studying psychotherapy. And therefore, many of these criticisms are based on misconceptions about what psychotherapy is, how it works, what it's trying to achieve. Such criticisms may also be made by people who, whether they are aware of it or not, find psychotherapy frightening. And of course, psychotherapy can be a very frightening and harrowing process, because it involves uncovering parts of yourself and parts of other people you're not particularly keen on finding out about. It also includes the relational risk of putting yourself in the hands of a relative stranger and often forces you to acknowledge how much responsibility you might have for some of your outcomes in life. In this podcast, therefore, we'll be discussing some common misconceptions people tend to have about psychotherapy and the psychotherapeutic process. Not necessarily to advocate psychotherapy as a mandatory part of everyone's growth, but to arrive at a place where we can start making those healthier, constructive criticisms we mentioned earlier. Before we go further, just a note to say this is the last of our weekly audio essays for now. I wanted to release 12 audio essays over a three-month period, starting in September, and we've done it. It's been an immensely challenging and rewarding process. We released essays covering topics from evolutionary psychology to practical philosophy to self-criticism, If you haven't yet listened to those, I'd encourage you to go back and check them out. For now, we're going to continue releasing a new episode of the podcast every Friday, which will mostly be interviews with experts and the occasional audio essay as well. But we hope to be back for another series of audio essays at some point in the future. We've received some great feedback for the series of essays we made. And if you'd like to add to that feedback, you can get in touch at thinkingmindpodcast at gmail.com. Getting back to today's episode, we're discussing seven misconceptions about psychotherapy. Misconception 1. 
Only people with a diagnosis of a mental health condition need therapy. Psychotherapy is not just for someone with a psychiatric diagnosis like depression or anxiety, say. It can be beneficial for anyone dealing with life challenges, stress or seeking some form of growth or improvement, which pretty much includes everyone. In fact, if you have a severe mental health condition, like schizophrenia, it can make therapy more difficult. For many individuals with disorders like this, it's often important that they're on a stable treatment regimen and that they're not acutely unwell before they start therapy. Because if they start whilst their mental state is unstable, the therapy is unlikely to have much benefit and could even potentially make things worse. For someone to benefit from therapy, all they really need is to be relatively clear-minded and sober, for their life circumstances to be reasonably stable, and to have a willingness to learn about themselves and talk honestly with a therapist about their life as they see it from their perspective. Misconception 2. Therapists have all the answers and will tell you what to do. Therapists are meant really to be guides and facilitators rather than instructors. If it's one thing any experienced therapist knows, it's that telling someone what to do is frankly ineffective. And even if a client did do what their therapist instructed them to do, they are subtly being robbed of their agency and their autonomy. Really one of the benefits of therapy is that it can help people become more intentional and more agentic with their lives. Therapists rarely in fact have the answer as to what an individual should do in a particular situation. And of course, there really probably isn't such a thing as the answer to any particular problem or dilemma. But rather, therapists can help their client reveal to themselves what it is they want, both on the micro level in a specific scenario and on the macro level looking at the big picture. The therapist can at most provide a framework for how a client can think about their problem or suggest a technique that a client can use to move towards their goal. This is common in very practical forms of therapy like cognitive behavior therapy. However, a therapist should really not be telling their client what decisions to make or how to live their lives. And it's worth noting that some forms of therapy such as person-centered or psychodynamic therapy will generally not even go as far as to provide a framework or a technique because their primary focus really is the development of a client's self-awareness and autonomy. For example, if a client comes to their therapist with a problem, should I stay in my job or start a new career? A therapist can help you think about that problem, think about what work means to you, what you want out of a career, what staying in your job might involve, what a new job might involve, how this might fit or break with old patterns, and you could work collaboratively with your therapist on practical approaches to this issue. But if your therapist simply tells you to stay in your job, or to find a new job, and directs you on how to go about this, this is not effective therapy, because you are not being encouraged to grow either in terms of your self-awareness, your problem-solving skills, or how you relate to your external world. Misconception 3. Therapy is only for long-term issues. It can't help with short-term problems. To this, I would say, problems manifest themselves at different levels. Short-term problems exist in relation to long-term problems. What seems like a short-term problem is often a reflection of a deeper, more long-standing issue. 
for example, a short-term problem like my boyfriend and I have been fighting for the past couple of weeks can, upon closer examination, be representative of a longer-term difficulty like you have an anxious attachment style and tend to seek out people with an avoidant attachment style and you end up in arguments because you tend to need more time and closeness from your partner and your partner reflexively pulls away. Short-term, everyday, seemingly mundane problems are often some of the best doorways for beginning to understand who we are and the deeper patterns of our lives. Similarly, therapeutic progression manifests itself at different levels. Every course of therapy has an arc, a beginning, middle and end. Every individual session has an arc. Any course of therapy or any session is an opportunity for transformation. And that transformation can be from ignorance to understanding, or from anger to sadness to grief to acceptance, or from frustration to satisfaction. Not only can therapy help with short-term problems, working on our short-term problems in a psychotherapeutic style can provide the clues to discovering their longer-term origins. Number four, therapy is just about talking, which doesn't accomplish anything. So, firstly, to say that therapy is only about talking is to vastly understate the importance of language. Aside from the fact that language can be considered as one of the primary factors that allowed human beings to become the dominant species on the planet, language is deeply embedded in human psychology. Language allows us to think, because of course we think in language. Language allows us to represent ideas, ideas about the past, and ideas about what is likely to happen in the future. Language allows our lives to take the form of a story or a narrative. When we enter into psychotherapy, we enter into a dialogue with someone. And in that dialogue, we can use language to come to a richer and deeper understanding of ourselves. Dialogue, when used carefully, can amplify our ability to think. Because we have someone to come along with us helping us pull on the threads of our thoughts and go deeper, to make associations which may not be obvious to us, as well as someone to point out the flaws in our thinking, our distortions, our blind spots, our contradictions. As we understand ourselves with more depth and perspective, we then gain the choice to not only tell ourselves our life story, but to have some authorship over our lives as well. You can accomplish a lot by talking, if you are willing to talk with some earnestness and intentionality. Number five, therapy is just about making excuses for your problems. This point really centers around responsibility. One of the things that psychotherapy tries to do is get us to take responsibility for things when we are unconsciously or consciously abdicating it, and to let go of responsibility for something when we are grasping too tightly and in fact have no control over the outcome. Some people have a tendency to take too much responsibility. These people are often high in a personality trait called conscientiousness and can be intensely self-critical and perfectionistic. They tend to internalize failure and continually ask themselves how they could be doing better. They often present to therapists because they're burnt out, depressed, or feel unable to cope. Despite often being high achieving, they often have low self-esteem, and achieving serves as a means of trying to get some self-esteem. 
But this fails because by definition, self-esteem is more about unconditional self-acceptance and therefore can never really be based on having to quote, achieve something. Therapy can help people like this come face to face with their imperfection and develop a healthier relationship with themselves, such that they can develop self-acceptance and a foundation of self-esteem. From this point, they can then continue to work and strive and achieve as they please, but not to be enslaved to achievement as the only means of feeling good about themselves. On the other hand, some people have a tendency to take too little responsibility for their problems. For example, a 50-year-old lawyer with narcissistic tendencies may have lived his whole life taking no responsibility for the health of his relationships, including his friendships, marriage and family life. He may have been financially successful, but never felt he had to put any investment in his relationships, because unconsciously he felt unique and special, and that people should come to him and submit themselves to him. A person like this might come to therapy when his marriage and family life collapse as a result of his behavior, and then he becomes depressed. Therapy can help someone like this come to terms with the fact that their view of themselves as uniquely entitled as essentially false, and help them do the work to take more responsibility for the health of their relationships, and help them build their relationships back into their life step by step. Misconception 6. Only weak people seek therapy, and it's a sign of personal failure. There is some truth in this, in that people often seek out therapy because their existing ways of coping with life have begun to fail. That being said, avoiding failure in life is simply not an option, and any version of sustainable success that people are likely to want can be defined by confronting failure voluntarily, reacting to that failure maturely, and learning from it. Entrepreneurs frequently comment that building a successful business requires a business owner to fail and make mistakes as quickly as possible, and to learn all the lessons they need to learn in order to get ahead of their competition. Seeking out psychotherapy constitutes a mature attitude to failure, in that it involves the humility of acknowledging your flaws and limitations, the willingness to seek assistance, and the curiosity to see yourself, other people, and life in a new way. As we are beginning to understand more and more in psychology, the willingness to confront our vulnerabilities is what helps us build strength and resilience. Enlisting the help of a therapist to help us with our mental health or to achieve certain goals is in principle not much different to enlisting the help of a doctor or a personal trainer or a nutritionist to help us with our physical health. And the last misconception we'll discuss, number seven, Therapy is about dwelling in childhood and the past. One of the things therapy is known for is thinking about someone's early life experiences and how this impacts them psychologically as an adult. Freud was one of the first people to talk about this, and it's important to note how radical this notion was when he popularized it at the turn of the 20th century. Because of this emphasis on the past, many critics argue that dwelling in what happened in the past does not help a person deal with their present and future problems, and is just another way of avoiding responsibility. There is of course some truth in the idea that people can spend too much time ruminating in the past, and this can be a fuel for someone's resentments 
and distract them from dealing with their current problems. I would argue, however, that there's an important distinction to be made between dwelling in your past and having a coherent understanding of your past and how this shapes your present way of looking at the world. For example, a 29-year-old woman may come to realize through therapy that having a strict authoritarian mother heavily impacts her reaction to authority figures in the present, including teachers and professors at her university, causing her to have problematic relationships with these authority figures. This is what we call transference, when feelings and attitudes we have towards one person can be transferred onto another person. Through understanding her problems through the lens of transference, this client can begin to regulate her emotions and see her teachers with fresh eyes and interact with them as individuals rather than as repetitions of her mother. This is just one of many examples of how examining our past can help us navigate our current difficulties. It's also worth noting how many types of therapy, such as Gestalt psychotherapy and cognitive behavior therapy, are considered to be very present-focused, and were consciously designed to avoid getting stuck in counterproductive ruminations about a person's history. There are a couple of caveats and counter-arguments to today's discussion I want to make. Firstly, psychotherapy in many countries, and even in the UK, is an unregulated term which means anyone can use it. And that's why it's important that if you start working with a therapist, that you make sure they're accredited and have done some form of training and ideally belong to a regulated group, such as the BACP, British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy, or UKCP, UK Council for Psychotherapy, and preferably whose training has required them to undergo their own course of therapy. Secondly, Psychotherapists vary hugely in quality, and therapists who are inadequately trained or who don't strive to improve their practice can fall into some of the traps which we outlined in these misconceptions. For example, they may be too directive and give advice, or enable their client to avoid taking responsibility for certain aspects of their lives. And lastly, I would want to say that if you're trying therapy for the first time, It's okay to try out a therapist for one or two sessions, see what it's like to work with them, see if you can develop a good working relationship with them before committing to something long term. A good relationship with your therapist should feel at baseline comfortable in that you can express yourself and feel that you're not being judged, but at the same time you should feel like your therapist is able to challenge you, point out things that you might not be aware of, point out some of your blind spots and help you grow, which often feels a little bit uncomfortable. So hopefully, if you are in therapy, seeking it out, or training as a therapist, you can use this podcast as a starting point to examine your own ideas about how and why psychotherapy works, and compare it and contrast it with your experiences, so that you can get more out of therapy, or provide a deeper, richer experience for your clients. We hope you enjoyed this and our previous 11 audio essays in this series. You can continue to look out for a new episode of the Thinking Mind podcast every Friday, featuring expert interviews all about psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, philosophy and related topics. Thanks for listening.
Thanks so much for listening this week. If you've got any feedback, as always, do get in touch. If you enjoyed the episode, why not give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, because it really helps other people to find us. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter, or you can drop us an email. And if you value the show more generally, why not buy us a coffee? Thanks so much.